things for me. Great. Well, I can't tell you what an absolute treat it is to see so many people in the room. Um, I think me and Tim are both probably extroverts and just love being with people. So it's a joy to see so many half faces behind your masks. And it's obviously a joy to have you all joining us online as well. So don't feel left out. We've been uh, running this series through James about going deep in faith. Um, James, as you, I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, wasn't never really my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, I generally avoided it because of Luther's various prejudices against it. Uh, but I, I've learned to really love it, and I've just really enjoyed studying it over this month. I hope you've enjoyed it too. So much richness in there. And tonight we're going to be reading uh, from James chapter 5, verses 7 through to 11, if you'd like to join me. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we considered blessed those who, are, who persevered. You've heard of, Jacob, of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Well, I've been asking what makes waiting so uncomfortable, uh, particularly over this past year. I'm still asking what makes waiting so uncomfortable. We'll all have our own waiting stories. Some of those stories are quite frivolous and light, like the, the wait that you have to undertake now to go to the post office uh, or the, the delay on your Amazon delivery. And other weights are catastrophically painful, like the wait for a partner or, or maybe the wait for a life-saving transplant or, or maybe the wait for a baby. You know, the need to wait is a problem that society has really sought to edit out. Every government and every business has sought as a matter of commercial and electoral success to enable us to get what we want more and more quickly. It's remarkable to me now that you can put in an order. We had some kids' illustrations this morning. I, nearly, I wanted an egg timer, but I'd only thought about the egg timer on Saturday morning. And I thought, I wonder if I can get an egg timer by the end of the day. They nearly did it, but um, pulled out the last minute. You know, it's amazing that you could order something and have it delivered on the same day. We all want things more quickly, and we get frustrated in the waiting. And whilst there are huge benefits to rapid rollout, as we've seen with this vaccine program, there are also great challenges with the acceleration of life, challenges to us getting what we want too quickly. Now, that might sound strange and uncomfortable, but think about it with me. Think about the downsides of us getting what we want when we want them. Amazon order coming in. You know, we gradually become intolerant of waiting and of each other. You know, psychologically, what we don't practice, we often lose. And when we lose the opportunity to wait, we lose the ability to wait well. And when we've lost sight of waiting, we become more and more impatient. Now, we used to wait two weeks for a letter to arrive. Now we get annoyed if someone hasn't responded to an email within three minutes. We've become less and less capable to deal with waiting. Secondly, we tend to disconnect from anticipated goals that don't materialize within a predicted time frame. 
that we lose interest quite quickly if we have to wait for something. If you found yourself, you know, in a queue for something that you thought you wanted, maybe it was a dress that you picked off the shelf, and, and you were standing there waiting, and then gradually, the longer you waited, the less you liked the dress. It was like, oh, actually, no, I don't like it that much, and, and, and then you go and put it back. Or, or, or maybe it's a pair of trainers. You're like, oh, these are great. Uh, I really love these. And the longer you waited, the more expensive they felt in your hands. Until you're like, oh, actually, you know, our waiting changes our relationship to the things that we anticipate. Can make us lose passion. And thirdly, those that wait, not us, but those that wait around us, can become marginalized, which is one of my greatest fears in the church. We don't stand with those who wait. They become unsupported amongst us, and we become unable to wait with them. As if their waiting is a personal assault on us. Oh, oh, they're still going on about that thing that they want. Oh, haven't they got the faith for that yet? Or, oh, has God not answered that prayer? So we become uncomfortable with waiting with others, which is a core part of our call as Christians, to stand with one another and share with one another in our burdens. You might think that these issues are really specific to our society today, like, oh, it's a 21st century thing, being super impatient and getting stuff super quick. But everything's relative. You know, scribes who are rolling out scrolls and, you know, cutting into stone tablets, they, they had a time frame. You know, maybe you're impatient for, like, something to arrive after a year of ordering, but if it hadn't arrived, you know, you were still annoyed. And in the first century, there, 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 were, there was pressure to make things happen quickly. In the early church, there were some pretty heated arguments about waiting, specifically about waiting for the return of Jesus. 2 Peter 3 is written specifically to resolve one of these arguments. Peter says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. You can imagine that as a company today, you know, sending that in an email to your clients. Just to make it really clear that this company is not slow in keeping their promises, as some understand slowness. Almost like redefining the term as to what slowness means. Only God can do that. Now, it's really interesting that people were urgent. They had a time frame they wanted to impose on the Lord. They wanted things to happen now. And Peter's encouragement, like James's here, is a call for patience. Patience comes from the Latin word Potentia, which regards a quality of endurance. It's a far less attractive way of understanding patience, isn't it? Because it brings the pain of waiting into our minds. Patience is like, I've just got to wait. But patience is really about the quality of our endurance. How we wait well. I want to ask you today, how do you wait? And can you wait well? I found this a difficult talk to write because, honestly, I'm a pretty bad waiter. Like, I don't wait particularly well. I, I, get, I get kind of stirred up in the waiting. I find myself getting frustrated in the waiting. Last year has been a huge challenge on innumerate levels, as you all know. But it's also been a huge opportunity in terms of the transformation of our experience with waiting collectively. I just want to acknowledge there are people in this room who've been waiting for things for a really long time. They're really well practiced in waiting. And many of them have waited really well and really graciously for the things that they're longing for. 
There's other of us in the room here and maybe online who've got far less experience in waiting, who've disconnected from waiting, who haven't needed to wait. And I guess I'm excited that those of us who are learning new skills in waiting might co-join with those of you who've been waiting for longer and that we might share in the waiting together again with compassion and understanding. This is an opportunity for us to transform not only our relationship with waiting, but our relationship with those who wait. The Greek word that James uses in verse 7 and 10 is macrothymia. Uh, This is made up of two words in the Greek. Macros, which you guys will all know is the macro story in business. I want to know the micro detail, but I want to know macro vision. So macros is this great long view. And thumas in the Greek means passion. And so patience in this book of James is made up of this word macrothymia, meaning long passion. I've got a long passion. And there are two ways to understand macrothymia in your life tonight. Uh, the first is to think about your relationship with waiting aggressively. If you, if you think about anything that causes you to, to feel fear, it's natural to have an aggressive response. Growing up in my family, I think me and my sister were quite competitive. I was always nervous about her fork hovering over my plate. And I think she was always nervous about my fork hovering over hers. So we learned to eat really, really quickly. Everyone was (laughs) slightly anxious. And and getting married to Louis, who likes to have long conversations over dinner, we sort of slightly stressed us out as a couple because I would sort of have finished my dinner and she'd barely put her fork in hers. I I need to learn to wait. But this part of waiting, this, this sense of threat, causes us to react with aggression. In James 5.9, he points out that the typical reaction to waiting is grumbling. Don't grumble against each other, brothers. You know, I, I, I am, I, I'm not a very good Christian driver. I don't know if anyone else has taken a fish sticker off the back of their car. <laughs> is it just me? See, the thing is, like, I, I just don't wait well in the car. And when I'm stuck in traffic, I allow my frustration to turn against my fellow drivers. Like, I live in North Barnes, close to the Hammersmith Bridge, which has been closed for a year. This morning when I cycled to church, I saw about 100 signs saying, tired of waiting or still waiting, question mark. And I thought, yes, that's right, I'm still waiting. Open that bridge. But, But when I'm driving to work, And I get down to Putney Bridge, even though I know that it's congested because Hammersmith Bridge is shut, I still turn my venom against other drivers. I still find myself becoming more and more irritated. Come on, move up. What are you doing? Why are you hanging back? Why are you letting so many people in from side roads? And are you distracted by a phone? Please, wake up. I'm quite quick with the horn. Now my kids are like, Dad, stop beeping. It's all right, they don't know who I am. They don't know I'm a vicar. I can get away with it. Now, once after a New Wine, a big Christian conference, I was towing my caravan back home and I got stuck in a traffic jam and I got so irritated, I released the clutch too quickly and I shunted the car in front of me, even though we were stationary. It was like she jumped out and she was really cross. And I was really angry with her, but as soon as I'd hit the back of her car, I suddenly felt less angry and much more embarrassed. She's like, what are you doing? I said, sorry, I just, I just lost my cool. I can't wait any longer. 
like the weight of the caravan behind me, it sort of like shot forward and then suddenly, bow, we were there. Like, I don't wait well because I see waiting as a threat and so I respond with aggression. When we perceive that threat, it's challenging. It's hard to control ourselves. If you've been waiting for something for a long time, you'll know what that feels like. Feeling irritated and raggy. And then turning your frustration on the ones that you love. One psychological study by Dwight Hennessy on congestion found that, I quote, driver aggression was the only category of behaviors that differed between low and high congestion conditions. So it wasn't a great study, was it? Well, he set out to find out that people get angry when they're in a queue. He basically found that out. Result. I wonder how long that PhD took him to put together. Just go out and sit in the traffic hall, all right? You'll see what happens. He said, the reality is, the greater the aggression, the higher the congestion. When we get slowed down, we get mad. You know, the opposite to macrothymia is short passion, or what we call quick-temperedness. So James is calling us to have this macrothymia, this long passion. He's saying, don't get angry. But most importantly, don't turn your anger on one another. Don't start grumbling against one another. In these passages, you know, they're grumbling against one another because they're waiting for the Lord. What does grumbling against one another have to do with whether the Lord's returning today or tomorrow? Or in a millennia? Nothing. It's just evidence that we naturally turn our frustration on one another. It may be instinctual to get angry when we need to wait, but we're called to consider the blessings of those who were patient in the face of suffering. Specifically, James refers to Job and the prophets who modeled macrothymia. They modeled what it was to wait, to actually keep pressing into the Lord and recognize that we don't need to un hinge our aggression. We don't need to let it free to feel better. There's a better way of waiting. We're called to a mentality that mirrors Job's trust in the goodness of God. I want to be really clear here that we don't always get what we want. You know, I, I, I really struggle with Christian teaching that suggests that, that you're under pressure to wait really well and have like mega faith for whatever it is that you really want, because at the end of the day, if you just do well enough in the waiting and your faith is big enough, you're always going to get your heart's desire. I think that's really unhelpful teaching. And that teaching leaves you in, in, in a place of, 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 of deep anguish, constantly criticizing yourself for not having done better in the waiting and, and having pleased God enough that he might give you good things. The fact is, each and every one of you are God's children. He's created you in his image. And I can't tell you why you're not getting the desires of your heart. I can't tell you why that dream hasn't been realized. But all I can tell you that is that God is still good and God still loves you. And so don't feel tonight that there's a qualification on your waiting that somehow is an acceleration of your ability to achieve whatever you're dreaming of. But instead, see the waiting as an opportunity for something else some great encounter with the nature and goodness of God. All these disciples were waiting for the Lord's return. Many of them thought the Lord was going to return within a year of his resurrection. And they were still waiting. John was still waiting on the rock in Patmos for the Lord's return when he died. 
still waiting, apparently the dream unrealized, but realized instead in eternal frame. That's not to soften the blow of the pain of those of you who are still waiting for the dream. It's just to encourage you to say that God loves you and God is still with you in this waiting. That it's not a judgment against you. It's an encouragement for something else, something rich, something powerful, which leads me on to the second part of what macrothiamia means, because it's not just about calm driving. James is not saying, oh, be a calm Christian driver. He's got a much more exciting view of what waiting looks like. It's not just the opposite of short-temperedness. When I was a kid, I dreamed about playing the electric guitar. I had like visions of like playing like Eddie Van Halen. You've been watching like these incredible Bruce Springsteen videos and like seeing them absolutely hammering the guitar and just going, yeah, that's what I want to do. Awesome, can't wait. I had this amazing dream of like playing on stage. I was seriously unmusical, but I I didn't let that stand against me. And I convinced my lovely and long-suffering parents that, that they should indulge this dream with me. So they said, okay, look, you know, we know you want to play the guitar, that's fine. We'll, we'll buy you an acoustic guitar, because you should learn on an acoustic guitar, and then when you're good enough, then you can move to an electric guitar. So I was like, okay, that sounds reasonable. So they got me a guitar which hurts to play, rather than the guitar that looks easy to play, because it's like strengthen your fingers and make them calloused and like suffer for your art. And then they got me uh, some lessons with some music teachers, which I found unbelievably boring. And like really hard to concentrate in. And then they started talking a language that I didn't understand and showed me symbols that I didn't know what they meant. And the reality was that I I have not learned the skill of playing the electric guitar or even the skill of playing an acoustic guitar or even the skill of playing any musical instrument. Because the reality is I wasn't prepared to wait well. I didn't understand what macrothymia meant. The reality of our journey is actually that we have to have a long passion A long passion is this long desire for the thing we really want. We have to retain the fire inside in order that the dream might be realized. Malcolm Gladwell in his 2008 book, Outliers, famously suggests that 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. (laughs) You love this. 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. What he's saying is if you spend 10,000 hours doing anything, you'll become an expert. 10,000 hours is the ticket to becoming a great artist or a great musician. Now, other psychologists have argued that this probably isn't exactly true because there's a complex matrix of what makes us good at something. But the core principle is that if we do something enough for long enough, it probably demonstrates that there's a passion and a gifting, but the reality of practice makes gifting a reality, and therefore you can pretty much guarantee you'll be pretty good at the guitar if you played it for 10,000 hours. I reckon I didn't cobble together 100 hours, maybe even 10 hours of guitar practice, and yet I wanted to be a guitar hero. Like, when it comes to this experience of macrothymia, James is not just saying, hey, wait really well and be really kind to each other. He's saying, hey, wait really well and grow in passion for the thing that you're longing for. And that's an opportunity in the waiting. There's real opportunity in the waiting. I just want to be clear that the important thing here is not that we become expert Christians. Just to clarify, there are no expert Christians. You know, there's no hierarchy of Christians. If you became a Christian 10 minutes ago, 
or you became a Christian 10 years ago, you're equally sons and daughters of the Most High God. There's no qualification on the greatness of being a Christian. But there is a differential between Christians who are really passionate for the gospel and the church and the kingdom, and Christians who are really apathetic to the gospel and the kingdom. And, 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 and they're written all over scripture, those people who've become cool-hearted and those people who've become warm-hearted. And we're called to be people who are on fire for the kingdom of God. Now, we might all be saved, but we want to be people who are pressing into the things of the kingdom. We want to be longing for the kingdom's reality amongst us. We want to be filled with passion, not filled with apathy. And that's why I want to speak to you tonight about building a passion for God in the waiting. I'm thinking about all of these first century disciples and apostles, like James here, writing, hungry to see the church growing in faith, not just treading water until Jesus comes again in glory. Imagine a church where there wasn't macrothymia represented through spiritual passion, but there was just macrothymia expressed through kindness to your neighbor or healthy driving. It wouldn't be the church that we know today. Because actually we're in a spiritual battle. We're called to passion, to allow our hearts to resonate again with the heart of God. Whilst we're waiting for his return, to stoke the fire of faith in one another. Which is why I'm so excited that you're back in the building with me tonight. I find it hard to stoke the fire of faith when I'm on my own, speaking to a camera. I don't get super excited. I want those masks off, but you're not allowed to take them off. Because I want, I want to see your faces. I want to encourage you. And I want you to encourage me all the more as the day is approaching. Psychologist Angela Duckworth calls the combination of endurance and passion grit. And I think that's a great word for us tonight. To say, let's be Christians who've got grit. You know, I, we, we, we want to be Christians who are persisting for the kingdom, with passion. And it's hard. Coming back into the church building, it's, it's tough. It's not exactly what you want to wear masks. I know we all want to socialise afterwards and we want to chat. And I want some of the St. Diane's hospitality, like bacon butties and, you know, great tea. But we can't have any of that yet. And that means we've got to wait. But we've got to wait with grit. Not to say, oh... This is a not really what I like, and it's not quite good enough, and oh, it's just a bit bland. And I, you know what? I think I'm going to take up yoga on a Sunday instead, because I could get passionate about that and just chill out in the park. You know, that's not grit. Grit is saying that Jesus is alive today by His Spirit. He can still meet with us. This is inconvenient, but all waiting is inconvenient. The key thing is that I turn this inconvenience into an opportunity. How can I turn the inconvenience of waiting into an opportunity for the Lord? Paul describes this in his second letter to Timothy 4.7 when he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. That's not the testimony of someone who's been a polite driver. That's the testimony of someone who's been a passionate disciple of Jesus. And retaining your passion in the absence of its object requires work. It's not some pragmatic litmus test on the quality of love. Like, if I still love this person, like, you know, after 10 years and I haven't tried, I know it's still love. Can you imagine that? I love marrying you. It's great. I'll see whether it's enduring love just by working out whether it's still happening like 10 years from now. Is that okay? 
Can you imagine going to a relationship like that? Be like, uh, I don't think this is going to work out. Like, there's no question about the love bit at the start, but imagine if you did that, if you're like, yeah, let's see how it goes. Like, no, love's not meant to be. Like, you know, we're not, wait, waiting is not a qualification on the quality of love. You have to stoke the fire of love. You have to keep going, you have to press in, in order that 10 years down the line you still love. It's a choice, it's a decision. You know, in 1939, when men went off to war, they put pictures of their sweethearts and trinkets from their sweethearts in their pockets and around their necks to remind them of their passion. You imagine going to war, carrying a picture of your sweetheart, just to remind you that when you're in the depths of battle, when you've been at war for four years, you can look at this picture and remind yourself of the person that you love. They stoked the fire of macrothymia in order that they might wait well. You know, if it's true for love, it's true for Christ. What are we doing to stoke the passion that we have for Jesus in our hearts today? You know, what are we doing in our week to remind ourselves of the one that we love? How are we pressing in to wait really well, to wait with passion, to retain the long passion in the waiting? Howard Rutledge, who was an American POW in Vietnam, he, he wrote, I never dreamed that I would spend almost seven years, five in solitary confinement in a prison in North Vietnam. Can, can we just get our heads around that for a moment after we spent a year in lockdown? I never imagined that I would spend seven years, five in solitary confinement, often subject to extreme torture, in a prison in North Vietnam, or thinking that one memorized Bible verse could make a whole day bearable. Wow. Seven years. Howard Rutledge, he memorized the Bible. He memorized passages of scripture before he went to war. And he spent seven years in a POW camp. Every day just recalling his long passion for Jesus. Just mulling. Just remembering that he loves the Lord and the Lord loves him. The Lord is here tonight. And I believe he's stirring a passion in your hearts. He's just reminding you of the long passion that you began this Christian journey with. He's saying, wait well with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's stop grumbling against one another and letting our irritation with waiting cause us to hurt one another. But also, let's be reminded of why we love. We love because he first loved us and gave himself as a, a sacrifice for our sin. He rose again in glory and ascended into the heavenly realm. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we're waiting. And we're going to wait well. Why don't we stand where we are and pray for the grace and power of his spirit to enable this to become a reality in our lives. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your enduring love for us. We want to pray right now that you come and meet us with your Holy Spirit. We know we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps for this message to be true for us that we need your spirit to enable us to be wait well people.
And so, Father, we pray, forgive us for where we grumble against one another, for where we weaponize our waiting. Help us to be grace-filled waiters. But, Lord, as well, we ask you tonight, would you, would you provoke the passion in every one of those here waiting and all those online at home? Provoke a passion in us again, Lord, for your church, for your gospel, for your world, for your kingdom. We pray you'd stoke the fire of our passion today, Lord, by your spirit. We pray we'd be those who are filled with energy, with a hunger to see the church grow and the kingdom expand in our nation. For the lost to be saved, for the hungry to be fed, for the prisoner to be visited, for the homeless to be housed, for the slave to be freed. Help us, Lord, by stoking our long passion. And Father, too, we acknowledge that those amongst us here tonight who've been waiting for a heart's desire for a long time, who are wounded in the waiting, who've been waiting alone because we've been bad at waiting with them. Forgive us, Jesus, for where we haven't waited well with others. Help us, Lord, as a community to show one another patient love and kindness in the waiting in all of the areas of our lives. And we pray we would experience grace from others as we wait for those hearts' desires. And Lord, even if we fail to receive them, we pray we'd be blessed in the waiting because we've known great love from you and great love from our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.